bike events are back, and if you are a VeloNews Active Pass subscriber, you get a special deal on some of the coolest bike events out there. That, of course, is the Roll Massey family of events, and Active Pass members get 25% off entry into any Roll Massey event, as well as free entry into the Elephant Rock Sportive going on June 6th down in Castle Rock, Colorado. Now, Roll Massey just added a ninth event for 2021. That is the Enchanted Circle Sportive going on August 28th down in Red River, New Mexico. But there's also there's gravel events like Wild Horse Gravel and Crooked Gravel. There's mountain bike events like the two Sunrise to Sunset mountain bike races, one at Castle Rock, one at Winter Park. And then there's your favorite lineup of road sportives like Copper Triangle and Copper Mountain, Colorado. The Enchanted Circle, Tour of the Vineyards, all sorts of fun stuff going on. You can learn more by going to rollmassive.com. And if you want to sign up for Active Pass, go to velonews.com forward slash Active Pass, and you can learn all about Roll Massive, plus the other cool deals you get, like access to exclusive content on velonews.com, industry deals, magazine subscriptions, even training advice. It's all right there. So again, check out velonews.com forward slash Active Pass. Okay. Let's get on with today's show. Uh, welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a wet and rainy morning here in Colorado. We are recording a day earlier than normal. It is Monday. The week has just begun. I'm looking at my email inbox and the number of emails coming in about the Giro d'Italia is overwhelming. All these teams just inundating us in the bike media with their rosters and their goals and their funny little memes. And Trek Segafredo has a Jaws thing around Vincenzo Nibali. They didn't go for Baby Shark. They went for uh, more of like a Jaws shark themed. But that's right. It's because it's Giro d'Italia week. Well, the week before Giro d'Italia week, uh, we have the first grand tour of the season coming up starting Saturday, which means all of the heavy hitters across Italy are, are gearing up. All of those uh, tier two teams with 19 sponsors of the jersey are getting ready to race against the world tour team. And it also means we here the Villain News podcast have our pre-Giro episode where we're going to dive into all of the storylines uh, that we're going to be following at the Giro. And with me, I have Jim Cotton and Andy Hood, and uh, we're, we're going to get into it. We each have five storylines that we uh, intend to follow during this Giro to tell you, and we're going to we're going to hash it out. We're going to get into it and uh, present all the takes and analysis for you guys to follow along with the Giro. Uh, Jim, I'll start with you. I mean, when this exercise, when I presented this exercise to you, which was, hey, come up with the storylines you're following at the Giro d'Italia and whittle it down to your top five. Uh, how did you go about processing this exercise and what were the difficult elements of coming up with just five stories to follow at the Giro? Hey, Fred. Well, yeah, there's just so many, so many interesting stories that uh, could be followed at this Giro that it's hard to say which are the five most interesting. Um, but the one that really stood out top of the list that can't be ignored is that three of the biggest names on the start sheet um, are all on their way back from injury and nobody really knows how they're going to respond. So that's Egan Bernal, uh, Remco Evenepoel and Vincenzo Nibali. Uh, Nibali crashed just three weeks ago and had his wrist in some sort of splint for about two weeks and it was only confirmed today he's racing and uh you know Vincenzo's getting on and uh you don't heal up as quickly when you're his age uh Bernal's kind of 
been struggling with a back problem for the last nine months or so. Uh, he looked great at the very start of the season, but has had a long break from racing since. So, you know, he could win, but he could also crack in the first week. And then there's Remco Evenepoel, who's just a massive question mark. He's not raced since Lombardia last uh, last summer. And um, his team are planning just to have him as a kind of domestique for Joao Almeida, but you never know what that kid could do. Okay, so I'm going to write this down here. Jim's first one, taking notes, is... Guys returning from injuries. I like this. This is a good uh, good thing to follow because I feel like there's always just so much unknown when we have someone coming back from an injury because we've seen uh, riders pop amazing results when they're supposedly in the returning from injury phase. And yet we've also seen riders perform terribly and drop out. I mean, you know, the, the most recent one that comes to mind is Egan Bernal last year with the back injury. Um, a hoodie, what to, to you when you think about the overarching topic of a guy coming back from an injury and what to watch for? I mean, what advice do you have for the viewers when they are analyzing every pedal stroke and every move of Egan Bernal, Remco Evenepoel, and Vincenzo Nibali? Hi, Fred. Yeah, you have to look at really just on those first accelerations, the first mountain climbs, if they're getting kind of struggling to stay in the bunch, those little telltale signs that, you know, inside the Peloton, the riders could pick up on that almost even before you get to a climb. If you see a rider struggling to stay in position, struggling to stay on the wheel, even on the flats, you know, there's blood out in the water and, and they will pounce on that. So you, I think you'll see, you know, if someone's struggling, they can hide it. They can kind of hide it, maybe band-aid it over for halfway through the Giro. But eventually, once you get into the real hard stages, there's no hiding. Uh, but you can see telltale signs of that early in the in the in the Giro. So, yeah, especially for a rider like Remco, who hasn't raced since October. Um, big question marks around his abilities to really go the distance in three weeks. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to be watching. I mean, Remco, this big rider of the future, and this horrible catastrophic injury, and now he's making his Grand Tour debut. I mean, remember how excited we were last year for his Grand Tour debut at the Giro d'Italia? I mean, we were listing him as a potential winner, and now. Team Quickstep is really downplaying it. And, oh, he's just helping Joao Almeida. So whether or not that is the case, that's a big storyline I'm going to follow. So, okay, guys returning from injury. Hoodie, what is the uh, your first storyline that you will be following at this year's Giro? Yeah, kind of piggyback on what Jim said. Mine is is all eyes are on Bernal. I mean, here's a guy came out guns ablaze and a few years ago. He won the Tour de France. Uh, 2019, everyone thought the fact that he was slotting into the Ineos Sky train, that he would be the next five-time winner of the Tour de France, just picking up that mantle and just barnstorming into the future. And for me right now, there's all kinds of question marks about where Bernal is going to go in his career. And it's not to say that his career is make or break with his Giro, but I think it's pretty important. I mean, if, if Bernal's back to where he kind of was, he should really – run away with his Giro. It's a good Giro for him. He can time trial well. You know, he's got a strong team, plenty of mountains for him to, to smash the smash the competition. If Bernardo's back, he'll win this Giro quite handily. If he flames out and doesn't finish the Giro or finishes 10th, I think there's big question marks about his future as a Grand Tour rider. Not, it's, his career isn't over, but, you know, you got Tade Pogacar and Roglic and a whole host of other riders coming up you know, his future kind of on the line here, really, in this Giro. Uh, Jim, a question for you to piggyback off of this point is when I look at Ineos Grenadier's lineup 
for the Giro. I mean, it's very strong. Jonathan, you know, Castro Vieco, Ghana, Martinez, uh, Gianni Moscon, Salvatore Puccio, and uh, Ivan Sosa. You have guys for the flats, the time trials, the big high mountains. Um, then there's a real smoky there, Pavel Sivakov. We've always heard that Sivakov is this rider of the future, this Grand Tour guy who's going to win Grand Tours himself. If this team is all for Bernal, what do you think the chances of Sivakov uh, becoming a protected GC rider or potentially being Ineos' uh, GC man for the Giro are? Well, I, w- I would guess, knowing how Ineos tends to do it, is that they'll say that you know Sivakov, Bernal, and Danny Martinez are all on kind of level pegging at the start and uh sort of just wait for wait for one of them one or two of them to fade and then uh then go all in behind the one that's uh that's left over uh for Sivakov I mean he's he's just as young as Bernal and um he's not had the grand tour success yet uh but he's always shown the promise so I think if anything Bernal will be like a half step ahead but Sivakov is a more than worthy kind of number two behind him all right well always intrigued with team Ineos that is uh hoodie's first storyline he's watching I'm writing this down okay uh my first storyline that I will be watching is this is going to be our first grand tour with the new UCI rules banning the super tuck and uh banning water bottle chucking you know having it be in these specific litter zones and hoodie wrote a great piece on the site i I suggest everyone checking it out about the unintended consequences that have come from these two rules about how everyone's really grumpy about the super tuck ban and poor richard carapaz getting disqualified at liege piston liege but then also how like the water bottle chucking thing now means that the soigneurs have become like janitors chasing after bottles and how all the fans are congregating together in these litter zones in hopes of getting a bottle, which of course completely re- reverses the entire safety protocols around anti-COVID-19, you know, spacing people out, etc. And so I'm interested to see how the UCI, if they rule with an iron fist, especially on the super tuck thing, and if we see any Grand Tour favorites, like get dinged with times or even get kicked out of the race. But more what I'm waiting for is like, how is this going to be expressed to uh, the broadcasters and then to us, the fans watching at home? Because I feel like in the races that have happened after these rule changes, everyone has become kind of an amateur super tuckologist and like a bottle chuckologist. Like now we just kind of like watch the broadcast for uh was the, did he throw the bottle? Uh, was that inside the zone or outside the zone? Uh, was his butt really on the seat or not on the seat? Is that a super tuck? Uh, uh. And so I'm really curious, you know, three weeks of racing, all those hours of racing, if we're going to uh, accept these new rules and move past them or if we're going to fixate on them uh, because they are new and controversial and, in my opinion, dumb. Uh, does anyone have any takes to add to uh, how we are going to watch for super tucks and bottle chucking and how the UCI plans to legislate them. It's going to be interesting to see exactly, Fred, because uh, so far it's been in relatively minor races and well, not to say Tour of Flanders and Liège are not minor races, but uh, you know how it's going to play out in a grand tour. Cause in a stage race going through the process, you know, you're going to get time penalties and points and fines taken away before you get evicted or chucked out of the race. So, you know, could it decide the GC? You know, a couple of guys get, getting into super tucks. I mean, old habits are hard to break. You know, you could just see a guy coming down a mountain in a breakaway, jumping into that tuck. And we saw at Liège, I mean, Carpas, it was not a major infraction. 
It was kind of like that was a yellow card at best, and they end up getting disqualified. So in a stage race, it's going to be a time penalty. You know, do you give Nibali, you know, who's one of the best descenders in the world, you know, maybe he jumps into the super tech. You're going to give him a 20-second penalty, which could have a major impact perhaps on the final GC. I don't know. But I agree. I think it's kind of ridiculous rules in terms of, you know, one of the bigger takeaways of that piece I wrote was the riders are saying, yeah, it's great. You know, we don't want to litter. We want to be safe. But there's other bigger, more important issues that should be addressed first before we deal with kind of these pettier kind of superficial issues right now concerning, you know, uh, littering or, or even just the super tuck. Yeah. If the Giro d'Italia is decided by a super tuck infraction, then that will be a sign that pro cycling has jumped in the trash and we will all go follow professional bocce ball or something like that, because that will be ridiculous. Uh, Jim, on to your second storyline you are following. What do you have for us? My second one is there's a Strada Bianca stage, stage 11. And, uh, spoken to a few directors and riders in the last kind of few days and some of them are getting quite uh, quite nervous about it so this 11th stage the final 70k is about 50 percent um off-road like the type well the same sectors i think as used by uh, used in strada bianca and um you know it's fine for these kind of specialists to go and race in strada bianca in march or for say you know classics riders to race on the pave but uh, off-road, off-road sectors in Grand Tours can always just cause complete carnage. And uh, one of the directors in particular was like absolutely fuming about it, and he thinks it's just dangerous. There's like a long downhill off-road sector where he where he's worried all his GC riders are going to come crashing off and things. And at uh, this stage, uh, it's the first day after the first rest day, which is always quite unpredictable as to how riders are kind of holding their form after that first rest day. So I think, you know, this is a stage which could be more decisive than any mountain stage or one of the time trials. So it's definitely one to uh, book the day off work for and uh, tune in for. I can't wait for it again. Yeah, this is no Plateau de Glieres where it's like 2K of gravel or whatever. This is full on gravel sector after gravel sector, reminiscent of like when the, you know, the tour organizers throw a Roubaix stage in there every now and again and some poor GC hope has his hopes dashed. Um, Also reminiscent of the 2010 Giro d'Italia Stage 7, won by Cadell Evans, which I kind of think was one of the moments in time that really kicked off the love affair with gravel because it was rainy, it was epic, it produced these great photographs and really thrilling action. Uh, Hoodie, what do you remember about that day? It was a hard day. <clears throat> and that's why I think that the uh, the fact that we do remember those stages, that's why races like the Giro and the Tour are adding these kinds of gravel. They want to bring the uh, the attraction. They want to bring the spectacle to the race. And, you know, overall, races have done a great job, really. You know, you remember, you know, some of the listeners might, be old, might not be old enough to remember, but, man, 20 years ago, the Giro was pretty boring. Uh, there's not a boring day, really, in the race these days. There's a couple of sprint stages might not be the most exciting. But, you know, adding these stages, they are gimmicky. You can understand why a sport director would be sitting on eggshells that day because, you know, a team and a rider put six months into these uh, preparations for these grand tours. You know, they do the recon, the riders are at altitude, and GIA race organizer wants to send them over a downhill on a gravel road at a 20% to, you know, pitch downhill on wet gravel roads. You can understand why people are nervous. You know, is it gimmicky? I think it kind of is, you know, does it, what does it add to the race? 
you know, that's a debate. I mean, it adds something to it. It's going to be a great stage, but I can understand why people don't like it because you could lose everything. And, you know, what is, what is the ultimate measure of a grand tour? It's the strongest rider over three weeks. It's not over, not about a skinny guy who can handle gravel or, or bounce over pave at Perry Robay, you know, which they never race in their lives anyway. Gimmicky. No way, man. This is epic, bro. We got to get like riders out there with handlebar bags and little twizzly swizzler mustaches and get all hipstered out maybe on a bike with like handlebars that go way out to the side and everyone's stopping to Instagram midway through the stage. That is what I am hoping for, you know, like a uh, a like hipster Giro stage where everyone is influencing along the way because they're epic gravel adventure, man. Uh, okay, that is your uh, second one is the Strada Bianchi stage. Hoodie, what is your second storyline that you are following? I'll be watching the, the narrative of you know, we've been talking about this generational shift over the last couple of years, the Pagatiaj coming through and the Bernals and all these Remcos coming through. So really here we have uh, a pretty good storyline between we have a few of these young leading lights uh, guys, you know, Remco, uh, Almeida and a few others versus some of the old grizzled veterans out there, Nibelis, you know, the Dan Martins. You know, if you even include guys like uh, perhaps Pozzo Vivo, maybe a Roman Bardet, Mika Landa, kind of intergenerational. You know, they've never won a Grand Tour. You got these young pups coming up. It's a, this is like last last chance saloon for a lot of guys to win a Grand Tour. So I'll be keeping my eyes on that. You know, really, does Nibali have a chance to win this thing? I mean, coming off his injury, probably not. But you know, if a guy like Lando or a Bardet is going to win a Grand Tour, they better make it happen now. I love it. Geezers versus Young Guns. It's a storyline we've been following the last few years. And yeah, this is just another chapter into it with Nibbly leading the charge of the grizzled old geezers. Uh, my storyline, my second one is, um, is piggybacking off of what you're talking about, is uh, Jai Hindley. Is he for real? The guy who finished second place at last year's Giro d'Italia, was it a fluke or is he ready to like follow up and score another podium, challenge for the win, maybe get a top five? I think that everyone sees potential in him, but you know, there's always pressure to have that follow-up performance after the first really awesome performance to say like, huh, you know, is this guy, does he really have what it takes or was last year some sort of weird aberration? And like, I know that's kind of a dumb like talking point in sports, but there've been plenty of one hit wonders uh, in Grand Tour racing, like the guy who pops a big win or gets on the podium and then we never see him before. And there's always kind of these questions of like, well, was it just that like the stars and the moon aligned or was there some, you know, bizarre element of last year that elevated this guy to the top? So Jai Hindley, if he can get back on the Giro d'Italia podium, or the top five or challenge for the win, I think that will be confirmation that he is indeed a young star uh, for the future. Um, Jim, do you have any Jai Hindley takes? Well, he'll just have to hope there's no cold, windy, like long descents in Italy because, uh, you know, you know what happens when he gets those rain, rain jacket problems. Gilet issues. Uh, what is your third talking point, Mr. Jim Cotton? Mine is uh, it's just Peter Sagan, just in general, all things Sagan. Um, so he's going back to the Giro after he took a stage win there last year and it was uh you know his one victory of the season last year and what really sort of saved the year for him and this year Sagan's kind of carrying a bit of form potentially into the Giro he won uh one of both of his last two stage races and uh he goes into the Giro kind of against a slightly less deep uh sprint field so there's you've got Caleb Ewan and Giacomo Nizzolo who are both great but they're there's not the 
the depth that you might see at the Tour de France, which kind of left him unstuck last year against uh, Sam Bennett. So just it would be great to see Sagan kind of back in the winner's circle again and um, be interesting to see if he can take a stage there, if not more. And it'll be also interesting to see how long he actually, how deep he goes into the Giro, if he goes all the way through the mountains or not, because uh, he's still planning on backing it up with the Tour de France as well after that. Something I'm going to be watching for with Sagan is like, is this going to be sprinter Sagan or hilly breakaway guy Sagan? I mean, with that success in the opening stage of Romandy, my guess is it's going to be sprinter Sagan. But yeah, I mean, if Caleb Ewan or Viviani or any of these other sprinters are on just such a different level, like we saw last year with DeMar, um, will Sagan have to change tact and like go be uh, go be breakaway guy? Um, always intrigue around Peter Sagan, even if he's only like the third storyline at this point that we're uh, we're talking about. Uh, Hoodie, what's your number three? Looking forward to the final week of the Giro. The final week of the Giro is always just the hardest week of any Grand Tour. Uh, when you kind of look at the average of kilometers in a Grand Tour, the average vertical in a Grand Tour, they all kind of come out the same. They're basically the stats kind of wash out because the Tour might only have three or maybe four hard mountain stages. But because the climbs are so long, so high, their average amount of uh, vertical kilometers is high. Whereas the Welta, uh, it's, there's climbs every day. There's not a flat road in Spain. So the cumulative there, climbs are shorter, but there's more punchier climbs. So the, the overall uh, kilometers climbed is similar to the Tour. Whereas at the Giro, you actually do have these just absolutely pancake flat stages, especially up there in the Po Valley. There's a few, always a few flat stages. Along the coast, there's always a few flat stages. So that means when there are a climbing stage, it's just absolutely brutal. And going into the final week, we got the Zocala and all these big climbs stacked up. So the final week of the Grand Tour, uh, for me, the best final week of the Grand Tour every year is the final week of, of the Giro. You add in a little snow, a little rain, you get these epic cracks where we've seen it almost at every Giro, where you can see these dramatic swings. You know, when Froome won that dramatic tour, he was off the back, had that great day. Same when Nibali won a few years back against Kweisrick. Uh, I think we'll see, and even last year, you know, epic racing in the final week. So last week of the Giro for me is one of the best weeks of the entire year. We've got a couple summit finishes looming large. Right now, I'm looking at stage 19. Uh, one, two, three, categorized climb with a big uh, cat one finish to the Alpe de Mera, which looks long and grinding and your typical Giro beat you over the head slugfest. I don't think this I, – I, I do think this year's final week is very hard. I mean, I think that this year the second week is particularly tough. But, you know, rest day, then three big mountain stages followed by an ITT – um, stage 20 to Alpamata. I think that's another big stage. So um, in typical Giro fashion, they're going to be saving it for the final week. This, this race probably won't be won until stage 17 or 19. Um, so yeah, good storyline to follow. My third storyline that I will be following is about what will the 2021 Giro d'Italia tell us about the 2020 Giro d'Italia? So this year we are back to having the relatively normal buildup to the Giro with the Spring Classics, with Romandy, with all these warm-up races falling back in normal succession. Teams and guys have been able to do their altitude training camps. It's not back 100% to the normal ebb and flow that we see with the buildup to these races, but it's close. And last year, of course, 
Everything was thrown into chaos. We saw races canceled, races packed into this, you know, compressed schedule and, you know, this really weird and wacky Giro come out of it. And so I'm curious if knowing that everyone who's at the Giro has had sort of a semi-normal build into the race, the traditional way, if we're going to see like more controlled racing, if we're going to see more predictable storylines, or if we're going to, you know, if we're going to be able to look now back now on the 2020 Giro d'Italia where we saw all these lead changes and, oh, Wilco Kelderman's going to win it. Oh, he cracked. Oh, Rowan Dennis is killing everybody. And Teo wins on the final stage. If that is going to then stand in aberration, and not saying we can put an asterisk next to the 2020, but we'll just be able to look back on the 2020 Giro d'Italia and really say like, wow, throwing the entire schedule into this, you know, this blender and we come up with this thrilling, exciting race was was really cool. And it was more an expression of the buildup to the race than, you know, than the traditional Giro itself, or whether we'll be able to have another thrilling, unpredictable, crazy race this year we can just say, well, the Giro is the Giro. You never can plan it as much as pro cycling tries to engineer these grand tours. They can't really because cycling is cycling. And so I think that is a storyline that I plan to look for. Um, on to number four for you, Jim. What is the fourth storyline you plan to follow this year? Following off uh, off the back of your your last take about this kind of weird 20 – well, whether it was a weird 2020 uh, Giro or not um, – is you've got this this real deep list of possible kind of GC guys, including Jai Hindley, who came second last year. So behind kind of Egan Bernal and Vincenzo Nibali, you've got George Bennett, Hugh Carthy, Alexander Vlasov, Mikel Lander, all these guys who are kind of always on the fringe of, you know, they're always in the top five or the top eight. And, you know, they might occasionally like dive in and win a stage. But this, this Giro is just kind of packing them all together and there's no real one favourite or the guys with the most, the deepest Palmares are, are coming in off an injury. So there's a sense that, you know, the lead could change a lot or there could be some, you know, some big like once in a career sort of opportunities at this year's race. And it's just going to be interesting to see which of those those guys you might sometimes call kind of second tier, like get their big chance to step up and really, really confirm a result. Uh, Jim, I'm going to give you 100 pounds sterling to wager on one of your second tier Giro guys, uh, Bennett, Hugh Carthy, Vlasov, Landa, and Jai Hindley. Who are you going to put your money on? This is to make the podium. Of those guys, who do you think the safest bet to make the podium would be? My heart my heart goes to Hugh Carthy just because uh, I think he's he's an awesome guy to watch and to listen to. But I would say my head is probably Alexander Vlasov. Wow. I see. My head would say Landa, but... Um, yeah, my heart would also say Bennett because the post-race quotes would just be hilarious and filled with expletives. And that's why we love George Bennett. Okay, Hoodie, on to you. What is your fourth storyline that you plan to follow this year? Remco, Remco, Remco. Need we say more? The boy wonder. You know, what can he do? How how much you know, was his crash at Lombardia a make or break in his career? I think he's young enough. That he could bounce back from that injury. Maybe it wasn't as bad. Uh, he certainly had some stutter steps coming back out of his recovery, coming back into racing. You know, the fact that the Giro is his first race since Lombardia, you know, the team is right to kind of tamp down expectations. But uh, we can fully expect the entire Belgian media contingent will be in the Giro this whole next three weeks. Remco is a huge star. He's great for cycling. He's great for Belgian cycling. Um, you know, I guess the big question mark is, you know, 
is this a confirmation for him? Will he transition from being, you know, he's already proven to be a one week stage racer. Can he, does he have the credentials to really race for three weeks and be a factor? You know, if he ends up in the podium, amazing story. If he races half the race and pulls out because, you know, he doesn't have the legs yet, no harm done. But Remco racing this Giro is big. It's big for the Giro. It's big for the sport. And so I'm really excited to see kind of just how far he can go in this Giro. Follow-up question for you. What do we tell ourselves if Remco sucks at this Giro? Like, how do we process it? Do we raise the, like, Chris Froome alarm bells and say, wow, this guy had this catastrophic injury. He will never be the same again. Or do we chalk it up to, like, uh, first Grand Tour uh, coming back from the crash? He still has it. Like, what do we... Like, first of all, how, how do we as fans process it if Remco's no good? How does the Belgian media process it if he's no good? Well, you can bet the Belgian media will spin it in a positive way because they, 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 need, they need Remco to sell newspapers. So they're not going to throw him under the bus. Um, but yeah, I think it's more the latter, Fred, um, because he is so young. The recovery from injury is going to be better. So if, if he's not going 100% at this Giro, it's completely understandable. Uh, I think even just getting this Giro into his legs – if he doesn't even factor into the top half of the GC, it doesn't really matter. If he can get through this Giro, finish it, put a Grand Tour on his legs, it'll help pay dividends in the future. You know, if he flames out and doesn't finish, I don't think it's the end of the world for Remco. Uh, you know, if it continues for a couple of years, yeah, then we can say that there's a before and after, maybe never would be or has been. Uh, but, you know, right now, everything is still everything's possible for Remco right now. Okay. I appreciate that because I have actually taken a second mortgage out on my house here and bet it all on Remco being, uh, you know, a nine time Tour de France winner, seven time Giro d'Italia winner and a bunch of other uh, bad bets that I've made. But, um, you know, Remco doesn't finish or is a flame out. Like I will still hold on to my Remco stock. I think we should still hold on to our Remco stock in general. He's so young. It's too early. He's going to do big things. He's a great name. Um, Jim, what is your final Giro storyline that you plan to follow this year? It's not so much a storyline. It's more just a kind of waiting point, which is just waiting for the for the big moment of Giro madness to arrive. Because every year it seems there's something, something strange or real, just wacky happens at the Giro, whether it be, you know, riders protesting in the rain, like just before a stage and shortening the stage to like 50K or something. There's... GC leaders crashing into big snow banks like uh, Kreisweik did. There'll probably be a stage shortened because because of snow and like, you know, a whirlwind or something. And there's just a sense around the Giro, whilst whilst the tour is like run like clockwork and it's kind of well well lubricated machine. It seems like the Giro is just always at risk of just something kind of going a bit wrong and a bit right. And that's that's part of the part of the joy of the race, I think. And um, it's just a case of waiting for that moment to come. We have so many examples of Giro Chaos. In fact, I feel like in our Giro Detalia print guide, I used to just always assign Andy Hood the like Giro Chaos story, which was to look into the previous year's like kerfuffle, whether it was like a snowstorm or Nairo Quintana, you know, getting away when the rest of the race was neutralized or railroad tracks causing a crash or rider prone. I mean, the list goes on and on. So yeah, maybe we could create some sort of wagering game where like there could be options and people could like bet on them of just like, well, I'm going to put $100 on a meteor falling from the sky and landing on top of the Gavia, triggering an avalanche that will then prompt a rider protest. And, um, you know, we, we could like hit all of them in one. So 
Geochaos, it's coming, everyone. Um, I forgot to give my fourth one. I'm going to give it right now, piggybacking on hoodies, Remco, Remco, Remco. I have an eye out for another Grand Tour debutante. And that, of course, is friend of the podcast, Matteo Jorgensen, uh, American, making his Grand Tour debut for Team Movistar. He is not riding for GC, but he is probably going to be one of the important GC helpers for that team. Um, Jim, you spoke to Matteo uh, this week. What kind of uh, what are some highlights, some be- some greatest hits that you can give us about what uh, Matteo is expecting to do at the Giro? Yeah, I'll be writing about Matteo this week, and he was basically telling me that, like you say, Fred, he's going to be sort of the number one kind of helper for Mark Soler, who's another one of those dark horse contenders uh, for the for the podium this week. So his plan is is to sort of be be the main man in the mountains, and hopefully to snipe for a few state stages along the way and um the, there was an initial kind of rumor that he might race for his own results but the team and he has decided that he would be better served to sort of actually you know support Soler who could really get in the top three rather than racing for his own say top 15 or something and, and keeping the freshness to also maybe win a stage as well so um you know it's his first grand tour and he really feels like anything's possible and he's he seems pretty confident and he's definitely a rider to watch uh, at least, yeah, in this race and through the kind of 15 years to come because he's only 21. He's got a lot of time left. Again, we love Matteo Jorgensen. Matteo, if you're listening, always open invite. I mean, you could be a co-host of the podcast if you'd like. We don't need Jim or Andy or Fred. We'd just be the Matteo Jorgensen podcast. He's great. Um, Andy, what is the what is the fifth and final storyline that you are going to be watching at this year's Giro? I always like to also watch the Giro for kind of the two, the second tier players, you know, these smaller teams that are attacking every day, riding in the breakaways. I had a conversation the other day with Johnny Savio, the uh, team manager at uh, Angeroni. He's been, I think, his 33rd, 2 or 34th Giro, I should say, coming back this year. You know, that team knows they have no chance against the World Tour teams, but their their goal, getting the breakaway every day, you know, they're chasing these uh, smaller prizes, the Meta Volantes, the, the hot sprints. They chase the most uh, kilometers prize. Um, there's a lot of breakaway stages in this year's Giro. I was talking to Larry Warbase the other day as well. You know, he wants to win a stage. So there's a hero in every Giro stage, someone who just really lays it out on the line. And you put that against the context of the Giro, how hard the race is, the Tifosi. Um, you know, this year's COVID, there's going to be less fans on the road. But the Giro delivers... Uh, some drama that the other Grand Tours can't. Um, so that's always a highlight for uh, really any stage during the Giro. It's that tug of war between the big and the small and the rich and the poor and the good and the not so good. I mean, these are the teams, you know, Bardiani, CSF, Fazane, and Androni, Giacatoli, Sidermec. You, you will, you know, see them. They are the teams that have 80 million um, sponsors on their jerseys. Every inch of the jersey has some uh, the name of some company that you've never heard of that probably does like tile work in like a province of like Italy or something like that. Um, I, I love watching these teams. They're always in the breakaway. I feel like the Giro specifically, the lower tier teams are particularly aggressive and have a good chance of winning stages from those breakaways. The unfortunate reality, though, is we've seen with the Giro, is that like the result of that stage, you're going to have to wait eight months because, uh, you know, Giacomo or whoever, you, you know, you got to wait for that B sample to come back with those guys. But that's a whole other story. And, you know, Androni Giacatoli is getting a spot in this year's Giro because uh, a different 
pro-Conti team got the boot because of doping. So fingers crossed that these guys animate the race, but do it the right way with their million sponsors um, flapping in the breeze. Okay, guys, we're going to wrap this up. The final Jiro storyline that I plan to follow involves the five mountainous stages at this year's Giro that are right around 160 kilometers, which is, we all know, uh, shorter than normal for the usual like 220 beat you over the head, slog through the mountains type stages. Now, there are a few of those stages at this year's Giro, of course, but the introduction of these 160K stages to me uh, is the Giro going full hipster and trying to follow the Tour de France and the Vuelta with its like short punchy stages? I don't know. I don't know. This seems like kind of like a dipping the toe in or sort of like a halfway push of like, hey, you guys are going 150K stages. We're going to go 160K stages, but have some climbs linked up back to back to back to maybe test and see if this format is going to uh, provoke attacks and chaos, etc. I mean, Hoodie, you know, the, the Giro, their whole brand over the last few years has been longer, slower, grittier, grueling. What do you make of 560K mountain stages or hilly and mountain stages at this year's race? It's an interesting observation because that has certainly been the trend over the last 10 or 15 years in Grand Tour course design. Uh, you know, there's there's a certain style of rider that, that favors. Uh, I remember Alberto Contador was one of the old school riders. He always said he needed those long, hard stages to really break the back of the peloton before he could make his difference. That's why he liked these long, harder stages. Whereas, you know, some explosive riders like uh, Pogaccia, you know, they thrive in this shorter, punchier format. So it, it's interesting to see the Giro go in that direction. Uh, you know, it's nice to have that blend, you know, to have 220Ks every day. That's not too exciting for anybody. Uh, so to mix it up, I think is a smart move in the part of the Giro. Well, it's three weeks long. There's all sorts of intrigue. Again, our 15 storylines that we've whittled this down to are, one, guys returning from injury, all eyes on Egan Bernal, how the UCI will enforce bottle chucking in the Super Tuck, the Strata Bianchi stage, that of course stage, uh, stage 11, I believe. Or was that, no, stage 14? Stage 11. Geezers versus Young Guns. Jai Hindley, is he for real? Peter Sagan, all things Peter Sagan, uh, the final week and whether it will deliver the coup de grace, um, the 2020 Giro versus the 2021 Giro, uh, second tier GC guys like George Bennett, Hugh Carthy, Vlasov, Landa, and Jai Hindley, um, Remco, 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 uh, Giro craziness and the chaos that we know is coming, uh, Pro Conti teams versus World Tour, Matteo Jorgensen and the shorter, short-ish short adjacent stages of this Giro. There will likely be other storylines to come out of this race, but guys, I feel like we have compiled a very, uh, I feel like we've compiled a good list. It hasn't felt like a slog through the woods compiling this list um, for the Giro. So uh, uh, thank you guys for deeping, digging deep into your take banks and coming up with these things to watch. Uh, okay, well, it's Jim Cotton and Andy Hood giving you the takes on the Villain News Podcast. Uh, Fred Dreyer here. We will link up with you all next week and discuss the opening weekend of the Giro d'Italia and how it has set the tone for the racing to come here on the Villain News Podcast. 